We are in a series called Our Core Values as a Church, and uh, in case some of you haven't figured out what the front cover is or what that picture is, it's actually a picture of uh, more of a scientific DNA type uh, strand. That's what the, that's all those little um, right side little dots are, which is kind of along the theme of what we're looking at, <clears throat> the DNA or the core values of Christ's community as a church family as a ministry that God has uh, given us to pursue. And so we're going through each one of these values, one per week, and understanding more deeply, kind of not just getting a, a, a superficial view, but going a little deeper into understanding how important those values are. <clears throat> In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Christ-centered worship, and we've also looked last week at a gospel-centered culture as a church. So today we're uh, hitting the th a third core value, which is called biblical-based teaching. And that's very important as we come not only just to God's Word here on Sunday mornings, but in all that we do, our small groups, our discipleship ministry, our youth ministry, our children's ministry, what we do on Sunday mornings and our classes, all that we do, it's based upon the Word of God. So we're going to look at that value today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Before we read the text, you may be wondering, well, this is an interesting passage to pursue this particular core value. Why not 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures, God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting and training in righteousness and all, or passages like that. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on some of those passages, but I thought rather than just talk about how the different ways we want to be a biblical-based church in our teaching and our communication and, and uh, equipping of God's word, we would just take a passage familiar to many, like this one is, and we would spend time going through it, understanding what the biblical teaching is of the passage, but then also going even a little further to understand and how we understand what the gospel is in all of God's word. So we'll, we'll understand that more clearly as we go along today. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, listen as I read God's word. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after for fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Let's pray. Father, this story, this account of the Son of God and the tempter, the evil one, is familiar to many, but yet, Lord, we pray that the freshness of your Spirit's presence, applying it to our hearts, the freshness of an understanding of your grace would rest upon us this very hour. You would prepare our hearts even to come and feast at your table that you have set before us, that we may 
receive what your spirit desires for us to receive, this worship. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at this text and then seeking not only to observe what the text itself says, but also seeking to understand it even more directly as God's grace would communicate to us. So first, let's look at the biblical text and how we observe just what is happening here in the text in the context of Matthew chapter 4. First of all, some observations. Observations about the tempter, Satan himself, and we're going to look at some observations about Jesus as well. First of all, about Satan. Matthew calls Satan in, as you see there, verse 3, the tempter. Exposes, in a sense, even his motives in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan certainly is the tempter. And he's spoken of, even in this account, because that is part of his very nature as a fallen angel, as one that is completely corrupt in his being. He seeks to deceive, he seeks to work his way so that we would possibly, if we gave in to his uh, ways of tempting and deceit, would then fall away from fellowship with God, fall away from following God and his will closely with our hearts. And he seeks to pull us away as he sought to pull Jesus himself, the Son of God, away. Satan also attacks Jesus in his weakness, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it says Jesus was hungry. He was certainly not in what would, would say the strongest position to receive a temptation from the best tempter that ever, ever has lived or lives. Jesus was weak from fasting. He was in the wilderness alone. Yes, he was spending time with the Father, and he was giving his heart in worship to the Father, and yet he was weak. And Satan knew he could come to him in his humanity and seek to tempt him and seek to try to pull him away uh, from where God had placed him. Satan was attacking Jesus in his weakness. And that's what he often will do to us or seek to do to us. He will seek to come at you or me even a roundabout way when we are at our weakest, when we are not expecting him to come. We may not be physically weak. We might be. We may not be even emotionally weak, but sometimes he comes when we're least expecting, when things are going maybe very well in our perception of how we're living uh, our life in Christ, and yet he comes when we're least expecting, and he attacks us when we are at the most, in the most vulnerable points in our life. Whether it be relationships, whether it be our job, whether it be uh, maybe um, our children or our parents or a sibling or something that we hold so dear, Satan will seek to attack us at those very vulnerable points. It doesn't really make much sense for him to attack you or me at points that mean very little to us. He will seek to go at those very things, whether directly or indirectly, through other situations, circumstances, through different things, he will seek to pursue us. But also, Satan questions Jesus' authority. Verses 3 and verse 5, he says, If you are the Son of God, of course, knowing full well he is the Son of God, but he just 
throws that out as questioning the authority of the very one that he is seeking to tempt. Satan's views on this very world that he dwells as his own dominion. Look at verse 9. He says, all this, he says to the Son of God, I will give you as if it belongs to him. I will give you, Jesus, all of this dominion. It's, as we know, delusional. It's delusional at best that he would say, all this I can give you when we know Christ himself created all that even Satan was seeking to tempt him with. Satan does not seek, though, it's interesting, in the entire account, he never seeks to do what? To overpower Jesus, just head on. He doesn't seek to overpower him. He knows he can't overpower him. He seeks to entice him, to draw him, and to tempt him in all types of ways. But he does not seek just to directly overpower him. For we know that Christ could do anything that he desired. But he, had, but he made a choice. We're going to see the choice that he makes. Some observations about Satan, but what about observations about Jesus? Well, first of all, it's interesting, the first verse of this chapter says... Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's very interesting. Maybe you've overlooked that little beginning part of this account. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. See, Jesus didn't go into the wilderness. He wasn't in this predicament with Satan due to a bad choice that he made in his life or due to a mistake that he had made going into the wilderness. He's like, oh, I should have never done this. That isn't why... Jesus was in the situation he was. He was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, to spend time there with the Father, to commune with the Father. So it wasn't just by happenstance, by coincidence, that Satan was in, or that Christ was there in this situation. He was led by the Spirit. So, for us, as God leads us, we must continue to trust that where he leads us, he will provide. Have you ever felt that God was leading you to a particular place or a particular circumstance or a decision to be made and you absolutely believe God was leading by his spirit as you sought him, as you prayed about it, and then as you then took the step of faith and either arrived at that decision or were in the midst of seeing that decision being fulfilled, things just began to unravel. Ever had that happen? But in your heart, you knew God had led you to do. There was no doubt in your mind. It could not have been any more clear to you. But then things unravel. And it seems like you're in an awful place. This can't be the center of God's will, for it doesn't feel very nice, very peaceful. And yet, the Spirit of God did lead you to that situation and knew full well you would be in a place of testing or trial or fire, even as the Spirit led you there. Just like Christ, we cannot doubt when the Spirit leads us into difficult circumstances, into trials, those opportunities where our faith is tested, as James tells us. James chapter 1 Verses 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith 
God does that, develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. See, Jesus' encounter with the tempter was not due to something that he did on his, in his life wrongly or a bad choice. It was the Spirit that led him there. But also, Jesus uses the Word of God to expose falsehood. Look in our account. Jesus continues to give a response from the Word of God. In verse 4, Jesus answered after the tempter came to him, and he responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8 from the Old Testament. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In verse 7, when he was tempted to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, I had an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land many years ago in seminary, and we went to the temple wall, went to what they called the pinnacle of the temple, which is the highest point in the temple wall. It was an amazing sight just to stand there and look up about 40 or 50 feet or so, and you could see where the wall, the corner came called the, the, the pinnacle of that temple mount. And to think, as you just visually stood there, that was where Jesus was tempted by Satan, to throw himself off there. Amazing opportunity that Satan was tempting Jesus in that situation. But as he did, Christ responded with Psalm 91. Psalm 91 he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in verse 10, after again the third time, the devil took them to this very high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms and said, all this I'll give you. Jesus responds with the word of God again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Each and every time Jesus uses the Old Testament, the words of God to respond to Satan. He didn't come up with some quick, neat response, that a jab or some smart comment. He didn't try to come up with something in his own strength, something in his own might, something that he was clever enough to create and then throw out at Satan. He simply responded with God's words, with that which was powerful, and he knew possessed the very power that it took to fight against an extremely evil power. And he knew the word of God was that. He uses the word to expose falsehood. You see, each of the temptations was Satan twisting truth, making it false. And in order to clarify that what Satan was saying was false, Jesus used the word of God to bring light to that darkness and to clarify what was actually true and what was false. Not only that, Jesus uses the word to fight the temptation when he says, away from me in verse 10, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God only. You see, the word of God has, contains power, spiritual power. It says about itself that it is the power of God, and it is active, it is dynamic, and it moves and acts in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, many of you know this verse, for the word of God is living and 
active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, Jesus could have called down legions of angels, myriads of angels. He could have in one single second wiped out all of Satan and his minions, if he so chose to do. But instead, Jesus' very weapon of choice to fight against these temptations and attacks from Satan was the Word of God. The very Word of God. So here's simple application. It's pretty obvious, is it not? Implication, application. Are we using the Word of God? Are you using the Word of God that's available to you to fight against those temptations, those struggles, those testings of your faith, the tempter coming at you indirectly or directly, things in your life that are falling apart, that you're struggling with. Are you seeking the Word of God to shine light? Are you believing the falsehood, the lies that are coming into your mind about what you're going through, or are you allowing the Word of God to clarify what is true and what is false on what you're being tempted to think and to believe that is not true? according to God's Word? Are you spending that time knowing that the Word of God gives you the power to understand, to fight the spiritual battle each and every day? Again, 2 Timothy 3 does say, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit as approximately 40 authors over a 1,500-year period wrote the Scriptures the Spirit of God superintended the entire process whereby everything we have that is God's canon, His rule of how we should understand to relate to Him, and He relates to us by giving us His grace and mercy. All that the Spirit of God put that we would receive it. He, one of my professors calls the Word of God God's baby talk. God's baby talk. That's what the scriptures are. It's the God of all creation communicating with us, his creatures. We're finite. We, we can barely understand, and yet he communicates to us through his word. He chose this medium. You know, in responding to Satan, Jesus rebukes and corrects Satan with this powerful source, the word of truth. And he allows the word itself to work in its power. Allowing the Word of God to work in its power. You know, I mentioned we have blind spots this year. I've been trying to identify as we go along. I think this might be a blind spot for some of us. What is that? The blind spot that we might not realize how important and critical it is for each one of us to pursue the Word of God. Is it a blind spot for you? Have you been going along just at 90 miles an hour in the world's pace? Whatever those things are that keep you so busy, and yet the Word of God just sits on the nightstand day after day after day after day. You might bring it to open it up when I say open your Bibles to here, but after that you close it and then you don't see it again until next Sunday. The Word of God is powerful, it's active. But it won't be if we're not employing it, putting it to its use that it's intended for in our lives. 
My freshman year, when I was um, involved in college sports and I was playing uh, at Middle Tennessee State, um, there were some really good players that year, and I was on the offense. And um, I remember after going through three days and really having a difficult time adjusting to the rigorous workouts and the way that we were um, practicing, preparing for the season, um, we we had uh, at one point uh, a scrimmage scheduled on the Astro, we had AstroTurf back then, not the, the real nice stuff they had. It was basically like this really, really short carpet and the, the, the carpet was, had a grain that went one way and if you fell against it with your bare skin, it would just rip the hide off your skin. It was terrible stuff and it was very hot. It was like basically putting um, you know, indoor-outdoor green grass carpet on top of concrete when you fell on it. It was just terrible. And uh, I remember one particular scrimmage, it was about a, uh, uh, they, they took thermometers and, they, and they, the, the trainers put it on the uh, AstroTurf. And it, the thermometers went to 130 degrees and it would not go any further, even though it filled up the thermometer. And, uh, you could see waves of heat. It was just a horrid place to, to, to actually practice and to be, but that's what we had and that's what we used. And so I, I went out there on and, and the scrimmage, and I went against Don Griffith, who actually played in the NFL Cincinnati Bengals, and he was an all-pro. He was an amazing defensive safety, and I had to go against him one-on-one. He, the ball was thrown my way, and he hit me so hard, he knocked me out of bounds in the air on top and over this, the, um, the aluminum bench on the sidelines. I completely hit that, flew over it, and landed in the concrete gully between the track and the astroturf bruised my hip bone like crazy. I was in great pain. And so after the scrimmage was over, I barely made it back to the training room and I'm in there. And not only is my back bruised, my hip is bruised. I've been totally just humiliated, but also physically beaten and broken. And my, on top of this, my big toe on my right foot was completely swollen. You get what they call turf toe when you play on this astroturf, and it swells the joints because you're stopping so vigorously, you're not used to it. And so I had my foot dipped in this big vat of hot wax, trying to heal it. That was one of the therapies they use, a hot wax. And I had ice packs all over my, I mean, I was just, it was bad. And I was depressed, I was now, I was sitting there looking around thinking, what am I doing? I was getting emotionally depressed. I really was. I felt isolated, alone. I didn't have any friends. I had just been on campus for about a month, left my home, never been away from home like that. I was depressed. And I said, I, I, I was about ready to literally start crying in the training room. Can you imagine? Here I am, this football player, going to start crying. I was just about ready to break down. And all of a sudden, God spoke. Now, not audibly, but he spoke. And he brought back a verse of his word to my heart that I'll never forget. Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's a verse I had memorized. And he brought it right back. And immediately, I just it was almost like, Physically and emotionally, it just started to, like a beam went down through my body, and I just felt complete. I got up, took, my, took the wax off my foot, took all the ice packs off my body. I had a countenance that was completely different, and I knew that God was with me in the midst of all the stuff I was going through. God's Word has that kind of power. It can literally change our countenance, change your perspective, change your heart, change how you understand your lot in life. That's what God's Word does if we employ it, if we use it.
God's word is that powerful. So we, we have observations from this particular text of Matthew 4, but what does the text itself give us to understand? The text understood is as important as observations. First of all, we have to look at the context, the context of Matthew chapter 4. The larger context, of course, is the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the whole New Testament, all of Scripture, of course, the larger context. But then you have the Gospel itself of Matthew. Matthew, a publican, a tax collector, he authored this particular account of the life of Christ. Um, one of the synoptics gospels that he writes his perspective of the life of Jesus and his ministry. And in this gospel, Matthew himself seeks to emphasize Jesus's messianic position. So many prophecies of the Messiah, Matthew seeks to show how they are in the person of Christ, how the prophecies are being fulfilled in Christ's ministry and in his person. And so Matthew seeks to show that in all the Old Testament prophecies that particularly even his Jewish audience, as they read these words of this gospel, would be looking for, would understand and, under, and know what Matthew was speaking about. But then if you narrow the focus down and you look at this chapter, chapter 4, what's happening in the storyline? Well, just prior to chapter 4 is what in chapter 3? If you have your Bibles, you can turn back there and look. If you don't have your Bibles, you need to bring your Bible next time, see? Um, Matthew chapter 3, at the end of the chapter is the baptism of Jesus. Maybe you're familiar with that, maybe you're not. When John the Baptist takes and baptizes Jesus there as kind of the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And that's the immediate context before you come here to this temptation in the wilderness. In Matthew 3, 13 through 17, it says, And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Why is this significant context? This is significant because John the Baptist, as we see, expresses his reluctance to be baptized by the one who should be baptizing him. John says, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Lord. You should be baptizing me. But again, in verse 15, Jesus replies to John the Baptist, and he says, let it be so now. This is proper for us to do, you to baptize me, to fulfill all righteousness. And then it said, John consented. He went ahead and baptized Jesus. You know, we understand baptism as a covenant sign of God's covenant sign that is to mark his people, pointing to God's covenant promises. And in the case of those who already possess true faith, just as in the Old Testament with circumcision, those who already possess true faith as adults, as those old enough to understand and put their faith in the one true God, they, those adult males were circumcised. And it so is true with baptism. 
It signifies for those that possess true faith as adults that cleansing that God has also done in us by the power of his spirit. So for Jesus to partake of baptism might seem a little bit out of place, being an adult and being baptized. Why? Well, it might seem out of place since Jesus possessed no sin or any whatsoever moral imperfection. So why would he be baptized? Ever asked that question? Well, Jesus did have sin. <gasps> did Mike just say it? Jesus did have sin. Not his, but yours and mine. You see? He was already forecasting what he came for his mission to do. He was already forecasting what he was going to do as the lamb that John the Baptist said. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so even in his baptism, he was saying, this is necessary. What's necessary? That I take on the sins of those whom the Father has given me. That I might be baptized. Context is so critical. Jesus was already beginning to point to his being the divine substitute, taking on our sin. So how does the baptism then connect with this passage that we have here today, his wilderness temptation? Well, that brings us to the final thought, and that is be careful as you seek to receive the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to memorize and to meditate upon the Word of God, that you don't miss the gospel. You can study the Word of God, you can preach, you can teach the Scriptures, and still miss the Gospel. I can communicate, as I do each Sunday, the Word of God. I can teach and preach the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, because I've done this for years, even before I planted Christ community, and many, many times especially years ago, I did so with no real understanding of communicating and understanding the gospel as God's word presents it to us. And that's so important that we don't miss the gospel. You see, we can teach and preach right doctrine. We can teach biblical truth and yet not proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. We can do that. We have to be careful to never miss what Jesus has done for us. My desire every single time that this pulpit is preaching the word of God is to proclaim the gospel clearly and faithfully as the word of God is taught and preached. Sunday, after Sunday. Jesus uses God's word to proclaim the gospel. Notice again what Satan says to Jesus in verse 3, 6, 8, and 9. He goes through and he gives them these three temptations, these three scenarios, and each time Jesus responds. But it's interesting, what do all three of these challenges, these temptations to Jesus have in common? Can you connect them? Verse 3, verse 6, verse 8 and 9. What are these challenges to Jesus? 
What is Satan really saying to Jesus? Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to come down from where you are. I want you to come down and use your divine power. Use this divine power that you are as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom you proclaim to really be. Use that divine power. Go ahead, show everyone what you can really do. I want you, I want you Jesus, to come down and establish your religion on this world like every other religion of the world and show by modeling for all the example that you really are and say that you are so that we can follow that example. That's what Satan wanted Jesus to do. Sounds pretty good, if you ask me. Sounds reasonable to ask a leader of a world religion to do something like that. Satan is saying, Jesus, I want you to come down in power and strength. I want you to come down and to all of your followers say, be like me. That's what Satan wanted him to do. Satan wanted Jesus to come down as an example, as a model for us. Satan was saying to Jesus, no, 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 don't come down in weakness. Don't come down in humility. And don't come down and say to all your followers, I'll be your substitute. Please don't do that. Satan is basically saying, don't let people be saved by faith. Jesus, let them be saved by emulation, by following you as the great divine example of how to live the Christian life, of perfect worship. Every other religion says, you live a righteous life and then you give it to God. The gospel says, Jesus lived the righteous life and he gives it to you. He turns what Satan was trying to get him to do on its head, completely on its head. You see, Satan is flailing against this that Jesus is seeking to do by not giving in to the temptation. And Satan is saying, don't you dare be their substitute because he knew if he was your substitute, it's over. Game over. You and I, we have all we need now. But if we emulate and try to follow Jesus as just a good example, well then Satan knew he had us. He had the chink in the armor, he thought. And he sought as hard as he could to try to get Jesus to follow and to fall. But just as Jesus did with John the Baptist, he does so now with Satan. And he turns the whole equation upside down. The king becomes a servant. The triumph becomes a judgment. The victory becomes reality through defeat. That is the gospel. Look at this table that we are right now going to come to. Jesus is saying to you and to me, in this table right now, I'm here as your substitute. I've come to be your substitute. I've come to die in your place so you can stand in mine. I've come to take upon the curse so that you might receive the blessing. The blessing of the good news. 